Okay, we'll make a start everybody. Good morning, or well, good afternoon, good evening, wherever the case may be, joining us around the world. Uh, I'm Simon Jackman. I'm Professor of Political Science and the Chief Executive Officer of the United States Study Center here at the University of Sydney. Thank you for joining us for another webinar. And as is customary for all our events here at the University of Sydney, I begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people, the traditional owners of the land on which the United States Study Center and the University of Sydney stands. And of course the Gadigal are part of the Eora nation. And we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. This morning, we're turning to a, a topic I get asked about every day, uh, multiple times every day. And that is, can we trust the polling we're seeing out of the United States right now that indicates, at least right now, that Joe Biden sits on a pretty comfortable lead, um, both nationally, but also critically in the swing states um, that will ultimately decide this election. And we thought this was a, a great topic to get into um, um, at this stage, drawing on um, sort of my past life as a, as a student of public opinion and, and political science. Um, and indeed, one of the big things that I think so many of us got wrong, frankly, in 2016 was uh, relying on the polls um, to make a forecast um, that, that, that Hillary Clinton would win. Um, now, in the end, we'll get into this in a moment, um, but the methodology we used, and I say we, because I still identify as part of that scholarly community big time, um, the methodology we used um, worked pretty well in 2008 and 2012. And so 2016, um, to see those polls not get the result correct was, was quite a shock, and, and not just to those of us in the polling and public opinion and political science communities, by the way. Um, so to explore this today, and I think ultimately to ask, so what do we make of this current batch of polling given the errors in the polls in 2016, we've reached out to Courtney Kennedy. And Courtney uh, directs the survey research program at Pew, um, the Pew Research Center, part of the, the Pew uh, Charitable Trust, the big philanthropic organization in the United States. Um, uh, pretty amazing organization and worth a separate discussion about the magnitude of Pew for an Australian audience. But in any event, we'll just focus on, on Courtney's role at Pew Research. Courtney uh, serves as the chief survey methodologist uh, for, for Pew, uh, providing guidance on all of its research uh, in public opinion and in particular methodological questions. Um, I knew Courtney in a, in a previous role when she was VP um, of the Advanced Methods Group at uh, APTAS RBI, one of the big market research firms in the United States um, that does a ton of polling for both commercial and in my case, when I was a client, um, uh, big academic projects. Um, um, Courtney's published in Public Opinion Quarterly, the Journal of Statistics and Methodology and the Journal of Official Statistics. And critically, uh, Courtney chaired a task force that was created by the American Association for Public Opinion Research uh, after the 2016 election. And I commend that report to you. We've linked to it at various points in the invite for this event. Um, many uh, former friends, students, uh, colleagues um, uh, also served alongside Courtney um, in, in, in doing that important work, some of which I think we'll get into with Courtney today. But when we were thinking of who to engage for this, we, we couldn't think of a better person 
than Courtney. And Courtney joins us, of course, from Washington, D.C., where it is eight o'clock in the evening and, uh, and Courtney's um, got a family there in the background who are, who are kindly um, being quiet. And, but with so many of our guests from the East Coast of the United States, Courtney, thank you in advance for giving us an hour of your time on a, what is it, a Monday night in, in Washington. Great to have you uh, with us. Thank you so much, Simon. My pleasure. Um, and Courtney, look, um, the other thing I need to thank you for is this slide deck that you've uh, presented ahead of time. Uh, and I'll, I'll turn it over to you, and then we'll come back uh, for some Q&A. And, and we've got our typical, about, today's audience is really interesting. I was talking to Courtney ahead of time. We've got about three quarters lay audience and about a good 25% of today's call uh, are fellow public opinion tragics from uh, the commercial world or academia, both Australia and the United States. So thank you to everybody that's joined us today. Um, and we'll let Courtney get on with her presentation and we'll come back for, for Q&A after that. Over to you, Courtney. Thanks so much, Simon. Um, are my slides up? Can you see them all right? Yeah. All right, terrific. Well, it's a pleasure to be with uh, everyone this morning. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so as I, I think you all know, we're in an era where there is, you know, a healthy skepticism of polls, especially pre-election polls. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's well-deserved and, and well-warranted based on 2016 and some other elections. Um, but as I'll discuss, I think in some ways, polling is in not quite as bad a position as I think a lot of people believe based on what happened in, uh, in, in 2016. So I'll talk about what happened there, what that committee learned that Simon referenced, um, touch on 2018, and then touch on uh, the current election in 2020. All right, so you know we're familiar with this narrative um, that uh, the, the polls were wrong in 2016. Um, you know, a lot of people understandably came away from that election feeling that the polls really misled, you know, Americans and in, in the world and that the polls were wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as Simon mentioned, one thing that happened after the election is a group of scholars got together and we spent months poring over the data, all the polls we could get. Um, really trying to understand what went wrong in the 2016 election. And so the report's there if you want, you know, 100 page, 150 pages of details, but I can give you sort of the high level findings. So if you really want to understand the 2016 election, it's a bit of a nuanced story. Because on the one hand, yes, unquestionably, there were major systematic misses, particularly in polls in those battleground states in the upper Midwest part of the US. But at the same time, what got lost is that national polling in the US actually had a, a reasonably good year and, and was reasonably accurate by historical standards. Now, of course, you know, no one paid attention to that because there was such a kind of a freak out about, um, you know, the presidential election. Uh, but, but that was indeed the case. So, you know, why were those state polls wrong though? Well, it wasn't a monocausal event. There wasn't just one thing that triggered it. What we found was there was evidence for several factors all working in the direction of underestimating support for Trump and overestimating support for Hillary Clinton. 
Now, the good news is that one of the things that went wrong in 2016 is technically fixable, and I'll get into that in a moment. Um, but I want to flesh out the first point, which is actually that the national polls were reasonably good in uh, 2016. So national, I'm talking here about polls done to gauge the views of all Americans, so the entire country. And those polls, the final average had Clinton up by about three percentage points. And in fact, in the national popular vote, she won that by about two percentage points. And so if you look at that, you know, you can see that there's nothing fundamentally broken with the result like that. That's, that's quite close, um, you know, for polling. And we can look at it through a historical lens too. So this chart is plotting the average amount of error in those final national election polls over time. And if 2016, you know, was a terrible year for those polls, you'd see that 2016 number high reflecting large error, but that's not the case. You know, you can see that the 2016 error nationally was relatively low and that in fact, we had uh, much higher error levels in polls back in, you know, the thirties and forties. And there is, uh, I think an important related point to be made here because as at least in the US, as we get near any election, you'll sort of inevitably hear, you know, at least one person, maybe more claim that the polls are biased, that pollsters, you know, have their thumb on the scale or something like this. Um, but that's actually not true. And this record bears that out. So this chart is showing for a given election that the polls tend to um, overstate support for the Democrat in blue or the Republican in red. And you can see for the past, you know, recent decades, it's flipped back and forth. It's tantamount to a coin flip. So, um, you know, there's, there's really no evidence and no reason to believe that pollsters uh, are, are biased in a partisan way. Um, frankly, we're incentivized to be accurate. We're incentivized to be right and not to put our thumb on the scale. So, all right, at this point you might be thinking, well, that's, that's nice, that's all well and good. But, you know, for goodness sakes, we all thought Hillary Clinton was gonna, get, was gonna win. So, so what gives? And I would say that there's two major things. Number one is the electoral college. You know, in the United States, we don't select the president through a national popular vote. It is in fact a series of state level contests. And so for polling, that means that if you do a national poll, it could be perfectly representative of how all Americans feel and voted and, and who they wanted to be president and still be wrong and still point to um, you know, the, the incorrect winner of the Electoral College. And in fact, that was, you know, basically the case in 2000 with Al Gore, George W. Bush, and in 2016, where you had one candidate winning the national popular vote and a different candidate winning the Electoral College. Uh, and secondly, it, it's just undeniable that the state polls, which I'll differentiate from the national ones, did actually have a historically bad year in 2016. Uh, and this is um, you know, taking that historical lens with the state polls. The timeline here doesn't go back nearly as far. We only have um, good state level uh, pre-election data going back to about 2000. But even within that condensed timeline, you can see that 2016 was in fact a historically bad year, the highest average error that we had in these recent elections. 
So why was that the case? You know, what, what was going on to produce that miss? Um, as I said, the committee found evidence for a few things. Um, one is that there was actually a real late break in support for Donald Trump among undecided voters. So if you think back to 2016, that both candidates were historically unpopular. There was legitimately, you know, a healthy share of the US public that frankly didn't like the choice. And they were unsure about who to vote for or whether they were gonna vote at all. And in these key states, that was about 10 to 15% of the electorate uh, based on the best available data. And normally, those sort of late deciding voters, they wash out, you know, they tend to vote about, break about evenly between the two major parties. But in 2016, they broke for Trump heavily in these key states by 15, 20 percentage points. And so what that means from a polling standpoint is that the polls were not necessarily wrong if they were conducted in September or October, but a lot of the polls were simply conducted too soon to measure that, that late break in Trump's favor. The second major issue is that um, is, is more of a technical one. So as long as I've been in the polling field, so going back 20 years, we've known that um, people with higher levels of formal education, college graduates, they're more likely to take surveys. Um, and it could be an election poll, a health poll, uh, financial poll, it doesn't matter what kind of survey. It, you, your college graduates are more likely to take it. Just It just is a very um, robust pattern in surveys. Um, and so a lot of pollsters, especially national ones, like, like where I work, we've been statistically adjusting our surveys. Every time we do a survey, we weight down the college graduates so that they're proportional to where they're supposed to be in the population. And we weight up folks with lower levels of formal education so that they're proportional to their share of the whole population. Um, so while most national pollsters were doing that adjustment, in 2016, most of the state pollsters were not. And in 2016, that was a huge problem because what this chart is showing is that so a voter's level of um, formal education was pretty strongly related to presidential vote, especially in, in those key battleground states. So the bottom line is, you know, in places like Michigan and Wisconsin, these state pollsters went out, they did their survey, they got higher response from college graduates, they had too many college graduates in their samples, and therefore they had too many Clinton voters and not enough Trump supporters. So that wasn't the only thing that went wrong in 2016, but that was uh, probably one of the, you know, the, the big surprises, the main findings that we learned. And the good news is that at least on paper, this issue is, is fixable. It's a little tricky. Um, you know, some pollsters might take issue with, um, you know, finding the right target to weight the data, and I'm happy to get into that. But um, as far as I'm concerned, the data is available to make this happen. Okay. Um, now we can fast forward in 2018. So in 2018, we did not have a presidential election in the U.S., but we did have a midterm and the national vote there was for the U.S. House of Representatives. So you had people voting for who was gonna represent their district and in the U.S. House. 
And um, what, what this election um, showed, what I think it underscored, is the fact that these national polls, if they're done carefully, um, they're still, they can still perform quite well. So in, in the 2018 midterm, the poll suggested that the Democrats were gonna do pretty well, have about an eight point advantage over the Republicans in the House. And that lines up very nicely with the actual vote outcome. The Democrats did take the House by about eight percentage points. So again, you know, yes, there were issues in 2016, but there's a lot of reason to believe that polling writ large is not, is not necessarily broken. And this is another lens. Um, this is from a study by Jennings and Wiesian. They took a very big, uh, you know, big lens to this research question. They looked at pre-election polls from around the world, 45 countries over this very long time period, you can see here going back to 1940. And what they did was they charted the average amount of error in pre-election polls around the world for each year. And so, you know, if it were the case, that, that polling is, is broken, you know, because of Brexit, because of the Scottish referendum, because of 2016, you know, if it was the case that it was broken, what we'd see is a, an increase on, on the right-hand side of this chart where you have the errors going up in recent years. But that, that's not the case. What they found is that, you know, that error level is actually pretty stable. And if anything, it's ticked down ever so slightly in the past few years. Um, okay, so let me uh, just kind of close out by saying a bit about 2016, which is probably more at the front of everybody's mind. Uh, I, I have to get this off my chest. It might fall on deaf ears, but when I get asked about polling, um, especially in an election year, you know, I get questions like, can we trust the polls? And my answer is, trust them to do what? If you're asking me, can you trust polls to tell us how um, you know, Americans or Australians are reacting to the pandemic, how they're feeling about the economy, how they're feeling about the candidates running for the highest office? Unequivocally, yes, polls are very good at doing that, at getting you know, a good high level read about where a country is at on major issues. Polls are totally up to that task. But if you ask me, can I trust a poll you know, in, in August to tell me who's gonna win the presidential election in Pennsylvania in November, I would say no, you should, you should, not, you should not think that a poll is gonna be that accurate and that predictive because as Simon and, and all of our colleagues know, polls are really not designed with that level to deliver that level of precision for a lot of reasons. You know, one of which is you're talking about human behavior in the future, and that's just you know inherently a very difficult thing to predict. Um, so my advice is to you know go ahead and look at the polls, look at how people are reacting to the pandemic, how they're feeling about Biden and Trump, but don't take that next step and, and think that they're going to be predictive of these you know close competitive battleground states. And sort of a different way to to formulate that. You know, as, as Simon said, we've uh, got the, these headlines, poll after poll nationally showing Biden with a pretty healthy lead. And, you know, we're getting asked all the time, so, so does that mean he's gonna win? And, um, you know, my answer to that is not necessarily. You know, it's undoubtedly a good sign for the Biden campaign, but there is reason after reason 
why you can't just take a national poll, especially this far out, and expect that to translate into votes in November. For one thing, um, a lot of Americans don't vote. So as a pollster, a lot of people that we're talking to, you know, a, a good fraction of them are, are not even going to turn out. So it's kind of beside the point what they tell us in our poll if we're trying to look at the outcome. Second is the Electoral College, which we talked about earlier. You know, you can get that national number perfect, but that's, that's not how we elect presidents. It's a state-by-state -state contest. Third, voters can change their minds. And as I said in 2016, that was actually a pretty important part of the story to understanding why the polls were off in some of those key states. And finally, uh, I suspect we'll get into this more, but the, the pandemic um, injects just a tremendous amount of uncertainty in terms of whether people are gonna vote, uh, you know, barriers to voting, access to voting, uh, ballots being counted, the timeline for counting ballots, there's just tremendous uncertainty in all of that. And from a polling perspective, at least in 2020, I, I don't think that pollsters can realistically address that in our data or model that away. You know, I can't do a statistical adjustment that's going to factor in, you know, uh, long lines at the polls or a state not being able to count its ballots. So we're really in uncharted territory and it just should make us all extra cautious when we're looking at polls. So that was uh, what I had in terms of prepared remarks, but I look forward to, to talking. Thank you, Courtney, for that. That's terrific. And um, for any first timers on the webinar today, um, do take advantage of the Q&A um, window. That's the little icon at the bottom of the, uh, of the, uh, of the Zoom window. And again, great. Uh, we're getting a few coming in now. Um, uh, please help yourself there. Um, that's the way to ask questions. We won't be flicking to people live video questions uh, today. Just a little, we'll lead into our time. Um, look, thanks, thanks, Courtney. Um, I've got a few questions that, um, perhaps the first one, um, I just want to pick up on something that you said in the, in the presentation. And it's something that colleagues ask me about all the time. And, and that is, you would think, right, as you observe, that most pollsters have an incentive to be correct, to wring out the bias. If you detect something wrong in your methodology in the last cycle, you go to town and... and um, but there are pollsters out there that, for various reasons, don't, don't seem to do that as much as others. And, you know, so-called partisan pollsters. And without naming names, but uh, the first letter starts with R. Um, there's a pollster out there that routinely seems to produce numbers that are anywhere from plus two to plus five, above sort of where the industry consensus is. Um, could you just again, without naming names unnecessarily or getting too pointed, what's the political economy that sustains sort of uh, polling with a distinct partisan bias to it cycle after cycle? That's a good question. Um, I think to me, it, it's reminiscent of the news media environment where there's a part of the country and, you know, let's be frank, a lot of them are, are 
you know, Trump supporter types, conservative Americans um, who I think for a while have felt that their views are not represented in mainstream media, among academic elites, yada, yada, yada. And, um, you know, this is just, uh, it, it, so my impression is that maybe the success of, you know, a pollster who sort of consistently, um, if anything, might overrepresent that view is sort of tied to that desire in that audience. That's, that's the best I could come up with for that. Okay. Yeah. Um, I guess another question, again, just a couple from me before we get into the pre-submitted questions and the ones that are coming in live. Thanks, everybody. Um, um, in 2016, I'm just wondering your view on this. The polling having feedback loops back into the electorate and to people's decision-making themselves. And so the, the case I'm imagining is um, someone that supported Sanders during the primary um, was disappointed to see Clinton get the nomination in 16. Um, wakes up in the week before, or maybe even on election morning, uh, and sees that they're in a state like Wisconsin, Michigan, or Pennsylvania, just to pick three. <laughs> uh, that turned out to be pivotal. Um, um, and, and says, you know, look, the polls say that Hillary's got this. Um, I really don't want to see Donald Trump become president, but you know, she's got it. I don't have to vote because I was down with Sanders in the primary. Do, do you, did the task force look at anything like that? Sort of the, the feedback loops into that late breaking constituency you identified to? And there's a question bang on that from Jim Orchard asked directly about that. Um, are the polls themselves driving some of that decision making in, in the last uh, three days, last week, some of that late-breaking behavior you, you alluded to in your presentation? That's a great question. I mean, frankly, I, I've been in this job before 2016, and when I used to get that question, I, myself and I think a lot of my colleagues would kind of brush it off. We'd kind of laugh it off and say, you know, there's, there's no, if you look at the body of social science literature, the notion that, like, um, some uh, some messages in the media uh, would have such a profound effect that people would stay home. Yeah, there's just not evidence to support that. But after 2016, I no longer laugh that off. Um, I think that um, there is, uh, it's at present a small, but perhaps a hopefully growing body of research on this question. Um, to, to bring data to bear. So I mean, Simon, as you know, as a social scientist, that is a very hard causal arrow to establish, <laughs> right? Show me the data that, you know, that is like falsifiable to the, the situation that, that you described, where you have people decide because of the narrative they heard in the news that to not vote. Um, so it's very hard for a, a social scientist who really takes their job seriously to like make that argument with data. And yet, you know, we all lived through this. We all heard the media. We've all talked to friends and family who made decisions about this. And it just sort of being an observer in the world, we know it's not silly to think that that didn't, you know, that that, that, that could have really have happened. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the committee, we would have loved to have explored that. We felt we didn't have data that spoke to it. Um, my colleague who used to work with me at Pew, Solomon Messing, 
Um, to his credit, he and two colleagues have tried to study this empirically. They did an exper it's a they did an experimental study, but it has been peer reviewed and published. And to my mind, as far as I know, it's sort of beginning to build uh, that research base that actually shows that this is true. Um, what they found is that um, if if normal people think that an election is very uncompetitive, that somebody's extreme, if they're told somebody's extremely likely to win, that can lower, um, make some people, not everybody, but can it make some people less likely to vote? And so I think it's a really serious issue and, and uh, people in the polling industry are, are now actually taking it very seriously. Yeah, and um, just on that, to our Australian friends um, on the call, Australian pollsters, if they don't, they should. Um, uh, walk out the front door every morning and, and, and kiss the soil um, and thank God for compulsory turnout here in Australia. <laughs> um, 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 and speaking of Australian pollsters, let me turn to um, a question that's come in from Martin O'Shaughnessy. Martin um, has been in the polling industry here in Australia for a long time, uh, ran news poll uh, here for a long time and is now uh, with Omnipoll. And he asks um, a, a great uh, uh, question, and that is, uh, how does the success rate of representative or quasi-representative polls, and uh, you know, I think he means that, he says, e.g. phone, and I think he means live phone, <laughs> compared to non-representative methods um, such as online panels. And uh, I know, boy, oh boy, that will uh, uh, get, get hearts a flutter uh, in the industry in the US and increasingly here in Australia too, by the way. Uh, but Courtney, I'm wondering if the task force had any observations about across modes um, uh, with respect to accuracy of, um, of some of those swing state polls back in 16. Sure, no, it's a very good question. We did look at it. Um, my takeaway uh, in, in my read of the data was that in 2016, mode, there was not a, a tremendously strong relationship between what, what mode was a poll and accuracy. In fact, if anything in 2016, um, this methodology that a lot of us kind of brush off, robo-polling, so you know, an automated message to predominantly landline phone numbers, Robopolling did relatively well in 2016, uh, but it's tricky. I don't think that, that anybody believes, honestly, that that's because it's an inherently strong methodology. We think that that happened because like errors sort of canceled. Robopolling is good at reaching uh, like old, old white people in the US, frankly, who um, lean conservative. And in 2016, that was a very helpful group to be tapping into and representing well. And so um, in, in that particular report, I felt like we got kind of a, um, uh, an unusual signal. I would say though that other people have studied this more comprehensively. So one thing that comes to mind, Nate Silver, you know, he does a lot of different things. One of the things he, he has looked at this issue over a number of elections and he's found uh, in the United States that live phone polls actually still do tend to perform the best. Even though the response rates are low and a host of other problems, live phone actually still works pretty well in, in the United States. Um, 
so I think that that's true. I also feel like even though it, you know, at Pew Research Center, we really favor certain probability-based methods. You know, I have to be honest, if you look at a lot of election work, the differences across modes are maybe not as big as, as you might think. And, um, you know, the thing that I'm increasingly convinced of is that mode is important, yes, but maybe at least, if not more important, is what the pollster does with their adjustment. And um, if you don't get that right, it doesn't matter what modes you use, you're not gonna get very good results. Or if you used a you know, less representative mode, less representative sample, but you did you know, a knockout job with your adjustment, you, know, you can do well. So it's, it's, it's a pretty complicated thing once you get into it. Um, and it, uh, to my mind, goes to the adjustment. Sure. And, and so perhaps just on that then, um, uh, a question from uh, Joan Bankol-Jones, um, the $64 million question, where are you landing, Courtney? Has industry learned its lesson? You, you, you presented that evidence that suggests that 18 did well and, and midterms, at least not that midterm, but historically midterms are lower turnout contests perhaps reliably so. And so that makes the success of the polls in 18 kind of striking because it was a massive turnout boost. Um, and yet the polls nailed that eight point gap nationally, at least pretty well. Um, yes. does, does that suggest to you that um, swing state polling is going to perform better in 2020 than 16, that people have learned, you know, and Twitter's been aflame on this the last couple of weeks, you know, have you got your education waiting uh, in, in your um, post-strat um, adjustment uh, methodology or quotering up front or whatever it might be. Um, um, I, I, what's your level of confidence having observed, you know, you did the 16 task force, you, you, you know, uh, you've been monitoring, I presume, the industry's progress since. I'm just wondering, you know, scale one to 10 perhaps, um, uh, um, has the industry as a whole moved off that, you know, particularly in the swing states, Courtney, where they were in 16? The honest answer is yes and no. So some state pollsters read the report, looked at their practices and, and made an adjustment and, and said, you know what, I'm going to learn from that and I'm, and I'm going to start doing an education adjustment or something similar. Um, so many have, have done that. And the, the awareness is great because you can see it, at least among people that are sort of pulse quote close poll watchers, the awareness is there. Um, and there have been some improvements. Also some pollsters like um, Nate Cohen at New York Times and uh, Cook, Kaiser Family, saw that there was a real lack of good state level polling data and have, have taken some steps to try to fill that void. So undoubtedly there's some, there's some positive signs. Um, but I think to temper that, a lot of the structural challenges in the polling field that were present in 2016 are still present with us in 2020. And by that, I mean, while there, yes, there's a lot of, uh, there's some good polling being done at the states, there's still a lot of fast and cheap polls being done at the state level. There's still a lot of very low quality polling being done. Some of it, you know, I, I looked at a poll recently in Michigan and 68% of the respondents were college graduates, but in a presidential election in Michigan, only about like 
35% of the voters are going to be college graduates. So you still see these, these wild um, errors. Um, so, you know, I kind of have a, a mixed reaction to how the field has adjusted. In terms of like, you know, confidence scale or something like that, you know, um, as, you, we, as you watch the, the news come in from the states these days and what's going on with the postal service and right. uh, these states trying to grapple with the operational challenge of just a, a skyrocketing volume of mail ballots that they're gonna have to process. I feel honestly like the pollsters could do a tremendous job yeah. in 2020 and it, it might not matter. If the election, the logistics of the election or you know the pandemic gets worse it could just make it um it could render all of that work sort of you know beside the point or or maybe suggest another miss so unfortunately there's some pretty live doomsday uh, scenarios that uh, that are that we're living with these days yeah yeah uh, big challenge to put um a <laughs> uh, 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 malfeasance in election administration to uh, square that with your total survey error framework or whatever. I can't wait that away, Simon. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, look, um, I want to um, get into a topic that multiple people are asking questions about, and, and that is um, the shy Tory phenomenon, as it was known in the, United, in the UK, um, uh, the, the shy Trump voter. Um, again, in 16, I have to, you know, did you guys look at it? What did you find? Um, what do you think about um, that as a hypothesis uh, for what we, you know, to sort of rationalize away, if you will, uh, the Biden-Trump lead, uh, uh, the, the Biden poll leads that we're seeing at the moment? Sure, no, that's a good question. Um, I mean, so on a, a fundamental level, do some people sometimes lie to pollsters? Yes, you know, sometimes that, that happens. Um, but is there evidence that that was, you know, one of the major things that was wrong in 2016? The answer to that question is, is no. So that, um, this committee that I worked on, we did have a lot of data to bring to bear on that. We actually were able to uh, come up with five different ways to test in our case, the shy Trump hypothesis that, that Trump voters, especially in a phone poll, just didn't want to, to admit that they support Trump or plan to vote for him. Um, but each of those five tests either return no evidence or just a small amount of evidence to support that hypothesis. Um, and then after that, um, colleagues and I at, at Pew, we did a, a randomized Mo test that tried to look into that. Again, very little evidence, somebody at Yale published a paper on it. He found virtually no evidence. So um, my feeling is taking all of that work, could that sort of measurement error contributed, you know, a small amount, a point, maybe two percentage points? I think that's possible, maybe two points at the outside. But, you know, in states like Michigan and Wisconsin, the polls were off by six, seven, eight points. Right. And see stronger evidence for those things that I talked about earlier. Yeah, um, the the other the other thing, and so Mark Texters, um, who um, partner in Crosby Texter, uh, 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 a very well known political consultancy here in Australia, and has, has done a lot of work in the United Kingdom uh, as well for the conservative uh, side of politics. Um, Mark 
um, great friend of ours at the US Study Center gives us a lot of his time. Um, and, and Mark asks um, about tactical uh, responses to polling. So not necessarily shy voting, you know, sort of a different mechanism at work, Courtney, um, but understanding that in being a survey respondent, you're a player. <laughs> um, precisely because this thing, the news is going to talk about the results or it's going to, you know, we live in the Nate Silver age and whatnot. So, so responding to polls has become performative partisanship or at least from some very cagey survey respondents potentially um, their chance to perhaps game uh, the system uh, uh, one way or the other. Um, I'm just wondering about that hypothesis as well, whether, at least in the United States, the case you know the best, um, if, if you and the task force or you and colleagues have, have seen any evidence of that sort of behavior. Yeah, there's a concrete example in the United States, but it, um, it, uh, it really came more, I would say, in the, um, the Democratic primary for 2020. Um, it happened after the 2016 uh, election and the report that we put out. So um, Tulsi Gabbard is, was uh, somebody running for the Democratic nomination at the beginning of this year. And um, I, it might still be up. Her, her campaign website contained instructions to her supporters to go join a particular online survey panel that lets anybody sign up to go join that panel so that they have a chance of participating in polls that, um, that were used to determine, I think, who gets to participate in, uh, in, in, in the uh, democratic debates for the, the nomination and also just, you know, polls that get picked up in the media. So that is, you know, I think to me, uh, scary frankly, that you could have people of, it doesn't matter what their political view, but people that hold one you know, particular political viewpoint systematically kind of flooding, or trying to flood anyway, uh, you know, uh, a survey platform, a place where, where we do polling. And I think that that really is uh, a danger with some of the new, you know, you mentioned less representative polls um, it's, it's, you know, a real danger with that type of methodology. I can't say that it, that they succeeded. I don't have any evidence that it worked, but that specter is, is, is with us. And, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty alarming. And that is, you know, a pretty strong argument, I think, that, that favors the more traditional polls that, that don't let anybody just sign up, but the pollster selects the sample, even if they have a low response rate. Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting observation about on-ramps to online panels. Are, are they themselves being gamed? Um, um, let me ask um, a question from my counterpart um, at our sister centre, the Perth US Asia Centre out in Western Australia, where it's um, two hours earlier. Um, <laughs> um, hello, Gordon from Gordon Flake, who's the CEO um, out there. And Gordon asks, um, I'm just wondering, Courtney, your take as a, as a survey methodologist, um, you know, we live in a, a Nate Silver, a post-Nate Silver, a poll aggregator world, and, you know, and I'll stick my hand up. I, I uh, did that work myself uh, many cycles uh, in, in the United States. Um, 
And look, I'll just ask Gordon's question. Should we give greater credence to weighted average or, or amalgamations of polls, such as that done by Nate? And, and I guess now we've got plenty other of uh, entrance into that marketplace as well. In, so I, I kind of am of two minds on this one. In theory, it does make sense. There's like a good, you know, statistical argument for using more data rather than, than less. So I, I think that there's some value in, in doing that sort of um, aggregation. Where I think it gets tricky is um, the extent to which the people performing that aggregation choose to have, you know, frankly, have standards in the inputs to the aggregation. And, um, you know, as someone that studies polls very carefully and, and does a lot of work trying to improve data quality, I just get, I get frustrated when I see polls that like on their face are, you know, just obviously low quality and, and contain large biases get sucked up into those aggregators. And so, you know, yeah, it makes sense to use more data than less, but on the other hand, garbage in, garbage out. You know, if, if the aggregator is, is using really poor inputs, I think people can get a false sense of how accurate that aggregation is. So um, it's a tricky one. Yeah, and, and one thing I've thought about, and it um, was pointed out to me by a very smart political science colleague when I was doing this work, um, uh, Howard Rosenthal uh, said to me, you know, that, that poll aggregation itself can be gained uh, with new, new pollsters coming in to shift the average uh, through systematically biased polls. Can, and, and it's hard in real time to guard against that. You've essentially got to downweight pollsters you've never seen before in your averaging to, to zero um, until you know something about their, their bona fides or something. But, it, but it's, it, it, you know, th that itself is not immune from, from being gamed. Um, too. So it's a, it's a good point. Um, um, John Aldrich from Duke University is with us. Great to have you, John. Um, um, and John asked a great question, uh, Courtney, about, um, about the way that now voting in Australian elections and elections around the democratic world with pre-polling, as we call it in Australia, or mail voting, like the, the actual decision window when people are actually casting ballots is, is very is very wide now. Um, uh, how is the industry dealing with that? What are the questions pollsters are doing? The, you know, presumed by election day in the last Australian election, um, about about a third of the votes had been cast. If you're in the field polling on the Thursday Friday before the Saturday election, about a about a third of the electorate had already voted. Um, just wondering, lessons learned, best practices on that uh, in in the United States. Yeah, it's a good question. And certainly there's um, operational details that, that we have to get right. So once the, those windows open, we do have to ask that um, battery differently in our polls. It's no longer just a com completely forward-looking measurement, right? But we have to ask people if, if they've already voted. And um, I don't think we've started doing that yet, but but we certainly will soon. And, um, and so we have to change our, our questionnaires accordingly. Um, I mean, other than that, um, I don't think that there's necessarily anything tricky from a polling standpoint. I mean, we sort of love it that you can start to get, you know, some of the early returns very slowly and very unevenly across the country. 
Um, but from a data analyst standpoint, it's sort of exciting because we get the data, you know, increasingly earlier than we traditionally had. Um, I think of it as, as more of an acute challenge for those of us who work on uh, exit polling and full disclosure, I, I do some of that work myself for one of the um, networks come election time. There, it's getting really tricky. You know, if you think about a traditional methodology built around um, talking to people as they leave the, the voting precinct, um, that's probably not gonna yeah. cut it, you know, this November. So there, I think you're looking at really big uh, operational challenges around that. Yeah, it'll be interesting for election night TV with the exit poll perhaps facing some of its greatest challenges ever. And perhaps not just the exit poll, but maybe even the vote count itself. But that's a topic for, a, for another day. Um, um, I'm just got a great question here um, um, from, from Darren uh, Panay. Now, now Darren um, runs um, the Survey Research Centre here in Australia, um, does a lot of high quality phone work historically is, has built a um, recruited through RDD online panel um, um, as well. Uh, and it's done a lot of methodological work as well. And after the, we had a polling miss of a sort here in our last federal election here in Australia. Uh, and, and Darren uh, is chair of an inquiry that the industry um, created kind of endogenously to, to, to look at that. And, and, and Darren asks about um, um, the fact that um, more politically engaged people um, are, are presumably more likely to participate in polls. And that's something you can't correct by going looking at the census. <laughs> um, just wondering if you could perhaps, you know, and again, but something that's not a huge deal in Australia given you've got compulsory turnout. So less of an issue here necessarily um, um, not nothing, but, but in, in an environment with, where that's confounded with the act of voting itself, uh, being politically engaged. I'm wondering, Courtney, if you could say a little bit about how the industry in the US deals with, with that. Yeah, I think Darren's absolutely right. Um, we see that in, in our polls in the states as well. So at, at Pew Research Center, um, we actually have a statistical adjustment. We rake on um, the, uh, the best available data we can get for what share of US adults are registered voters. And that's pretty unusual actually. So most polls you're, you're raking on, you know, you're statistically adjusting on age, you know, race, gender, geography, education, yada, yada, yada. Um, but in that mix, we also, um, we rake on registration status because naturally in our panel, that rate is, is north of that national benchmark by, you know, I forget on the order of 10 to 15 points. Sure. And we had the same thing uh, when we used to do telephone RDD back before we had our own online panel. So I, I think he's right. That's been with us um, for a number of years. It seems to, to hold up across countries. And um, I think it goes back to the statistical adjustment. Um, if, if you really kind of have to try to correct for that, if you want to get really good estimates for things like turnouts, political participation, uh, so on and so forth. You, you wouldn't do something like, um, I'm sorry, we're getting into the weeds here, but, um, but rake against um, say an estimate of political engagement or political interest from 
NES, GSS, uh, CSES, you know, some of the big um, canonical social science, you know, rake against an attitudinal variable qua an attitudinal variable. I'd consider it. Um, when, when you get down to it, one thing that, that we worry about is they get, there's this lag between the measurements and the publication and then our future measurement. So I think the, temp, the temporality of uh, that approach can be really tricky, whereas the registration rate's pretty stable. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I think in, in theory, that's kind of where the field is going. And not because anybody wants it to go there, but because we just don't have a choice. And those of us who you know, really study the, the shortcomings of polls, you know, we, we just see that some of these groups are overrepresented and we just want to do everything we can to fix that. Well, well, that leads me to, we've only got a couple more questions to go. We're, we're seven minutes off, off our close. And so let me ask about this 2020, among other things, is a census year, and which means the current census is 10 years old. Um, now, um, I know um, a little bit about how the ACS, the American Community Study, is used for, you know, updating estimates of... Um, uh, U.S. demographic trends and whatnot to help even down at the state level with weighting schemes and whatnot in between the census. But the census is the big enchilada um, um, for all of us sort of doing the trying to ring out biases and and you know what is the population you know, before we get to the electorate. But what is the the population, the adult population, resident adult population in the United States? Uh, we're trying to hit uh, with our polls. Um, could you say a little bit about, for an Australian audience that may not be aware of some of the challenges that confronted both politically, I guess, and operationally that are confronting uh, the 2020 census and, and the implications that might have for high quality social science work on the one hand, but commercial polling uh, going forward, Courtney? Sure. Well, to my mind, there were two major issues around the census in the United States in 2020. The first one was um, this effort to ask, are you a citizen of the United States or not? Because you know, the current administration has a whole lot of policies that are centered on that question of, of citizenship. And um, that caused tremendous concern uh, among people who engage with the census because you know, the people who might be worried about their status or worried about the status of friends and family on that type of question are the same people that it's very hard to get them to participate in a good year where everything's working perfectly. Uh, now, ultimately, I believe that question was not on the census form, but it still raised a lot of uh, concern and, and perhaps even fear in some quarters about whether that was gonna be measured and what would be done with that data. And the second thing more recently is um, the, the census field operation, where if, if you had not responded yet, you know, someone literally comes to your door and tries to get you to complete the, the census, um, that field effort is being ended, I think, a, at least a month earlier than had been planned. And it had been delayed anyway because of the pandemic. Um, and now it's going to be suspended early. So. Uh, again, that suggests that those households in the U.S. that need the most effort to get them to participate might not be getting uh, all the effort they, that they need, and it could have cascading effects for the quality of the data. From a pollster perspective, yeah, it's very concerning because we rely on that census portrait of the country 
to true up our own surveys. Every public opinion poll I've worked on for 20 years relied heavily on that portrait. And if that portrait's wrong, it has a cascading effect uh, for the data quality of polls and, and a lot of social science research. So um, yeah, that's, it's, it's very concerning. Hey, well, thanks for that. And then I guess the, the other question to ask, I've got to ask um, the $64 million question um, and that is, okay, Courtney, based on where the polls are, I know you said don't use polls in August to pre predict, um, predict wins. And, um, but so many people are uh, asking me to ask you. <laughs> um, um, and, you and you can wave it off if you like. But, but um, 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 given, given what you're seeing, certainly sort of in, in the polling at the moment, um, perhaps relative to other years, the... Um, uh, are you more or less confident about about sort of the lead that 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 Biden currently has and what it might portend for a November result? Or do you want to go back to the earlier point about <laughs> I'm giving you plenty of outs there, Courtney? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I literally can't answer that. You know, at, at, at Pew, we take our, our mission and our culture very seriously where we're rigorously nonpartisan, non-advocacy. And so, uh, you know, I just can't. Enough said. I can't take that. But um, you know, just as someone that that uh, is really involved in the polling field, I, I think if you had today's data with the polls coming in, it would be reasonable to have, you know, one level of confidence in that relationship to, to November. Um, but honestly, because of the, um, the, can, the questions around access to voting and the logistics, yeah. I think I think it's foolish to think that uh, an eight-point national lead in August means a whole lot. We, yeah, we're sure. just going to have to wait and see this year. Sure. And, and finally, Courtney, a lot of um, people are asking about the impact of those things on the vote, but I'll ask you as a researcher and as a pollster, uh, is Pew in the field right now doing work on access to the election, people's beliefs about the legitimacy of the process? Is that, is that, a, is that a live topic for you and colleagues at Pew? Yeah, and we actually, um, we asked some questions that touched on this in the last cycle, and so we can compare. We had a question that was something along the lines of, um, do you think it's going to be difficult to vote this November, or will it be, you know, sort of difficult or easy to vote? And I think in the last cycle, roughly maybe a quarter thought that it would be difficult to vote, and this year, uh, it's more like 50% are expecting some kind of challenge with voting. And so I think Americans are definitely on edge and, and wondering, um, you know, it's, a lot of us are asking, how should we vote? Should we vote in person because right. we no longer, you know, have high confidence in the right. postal service? Or if, if we vote by mail, but it's early enough, maybe that will be okay. And, you know, frankly, there's not a lot of guidance about how to navigate these things. So yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely in the field measuring those things and we're picking up on, you know, tremendous concern uh, among Americans about it. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And not just among Americans, by the way. Um, um, uh, the only people that benefit from um, asking questions about legitimacy of American democracy are not America's friends. Um, suffice to say, there's something we're very mindful of here. Um, at the U.S. Study Center. Um, Courtney, that takes us to the top of the hour. Thank you so much for giving us 
an hour out of family life um, um, tonight, uh, 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. there in, in Washington. We'll let you get back to an otherwise um, uh, family evening Monday night. Uh, thank you so much. And, and for everybody, um, I can't stress enough, um, if you don't know about Pew to our Australian uh, audience today, uh, it's just remarkable that this philanthropic foundation in the United States invests so much in understanding America and the world for that matter uh, uh, th through, through data, uh, through rigorous application of things like survey research in particular. Um, just prodigious producer of research um, that is, lives up to the best aspirations of social science rigor. Um, and, and Courtney um, drives a huge part of that mission um, and just a remarkable thing uh, that institutions in the United States uh, are committed uh, to making the world a better place through the application of, of the stuff we do, the, our, our toolkit. And, um, and I think that's worth reminding our Australian audience about. Get on the Pew website and check out just so many reports. The quality and the volume is, is stupendous. Um, something that the United States and institutions in the United States does better than anywhere else on the planet and perhaps any time in human history for that matter. But that's another, that's another story. Um, thanks to everybody. Look, a bit of advertising, uh, Janine and Mara, tomorrow, if you don't know about it, everybody, it's Tom Friedman um, is joining us. I'll wait for the slide. There it is. 24 hours or 23 hours from now, Tom Friedman from the New York Times uh, is giving us an hour of his, what will be a Tuesday evening for him. Uh, and that will be a, a big, big event. Um, already uh, many hundreds um, have signed up for that one. And I can tease, we haven't, we're not ready. I don't think we've got this on a slide yet, but coming up in a couple of weeks and we'll have more to say about this, uh, former national security advisor, John Bolton um, has agreed to give us an hour of his time as well. Um, just tr terrific to, uh, to have this quality of engagement uh, from, from the United States um, uh, with Courtney today, Tom Friedman tomorrow. What, a, what an amazing 24 hours for the United States Study Center. Um, and, and again, we can't do it without the generosity of, of folks like Courtney, uh, people that I've interacted with professionally. And um, in this time of, of adversity, um, uh, reaching out through, through Zoom and whatnot to give, us, to give us an hour. Thank you so much, Courtney. Such a pleasure. Best Best, best of luck over the cycle and, and beyond. Um, um, We're going to need uh, it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I hear you. And thanks, everybody. Thanks, Janine and Mara on the back end here in Sydney. And we'll see you tomorrow at 10 a.m. Uh, for the Tom Friedman Show. It'll be great. See you. Bye-bye.